Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrasli. Last year, Hong Kong citizens poured into the streets to protest China's efforts to assert more control over the city. A controversial extradition bill is driving massive protests in Hong Kong. The legislation would make it possible for Hong Kong officials to extradite some suspects to mainland China to stand trial. And critics Despite the bill being withdrawn, Hong Kong citizens did not retreat. Convinced of China's designs to crush their democracy, they persisted. A standoff at the Polytechnic University in Hong Kong is continuing at this hour after students barricaded themselves inside during anti-government protests. Every single entrance and exit to this campus has been blocked off. Is it really worth it? We think so. Why? Because this is our home. Hong Kong is our home. Then last month, China revived the protests by authorizing a new national security law for Hong Kong. The controversial legislation is being seen as a direct attack on the region's autonomy. Hong Kong's status has long been decided elsewhere. The territory came under British control in 1842, after the First Opium War, when the Qing Dynasty ceded it in the Treaty of Nanjing. China's Communist Party rulers never lost sight of this concession. The British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher... In 1984, Chinese Premier Zhao Ziyang and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher negotiated the Joint Declaration. It stipulated that Hong Kong would return to Chinese sovereignty when the British lease expired in 1997. I should like on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen and of the entire British people to express our thanks, admiration. On July 1st of that year, the, the last British governor moved out. Now, Hong Kong people are to run Hong Kong. The joint agreement promised Hong Kong a one country, two systems arrangement. China would quote unquote, review Hong Kong's status after 50 years in 2047. But under President Xi Jinping, China has clearly moved up the timeline. I just want to say to the international community that this is the end of Hong Kong. This is the end of one country, two systems. Hong Kong has been fighting to defend its freedoms for the past year. Can it win? And what will the battle cost China? Min Jinpei joins us to discuss. Hello, Min Shin. Hi. Minjin is professor of government at Claremont McKenna College and a non-resident senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Are we finding you in California? He is a regular contributor to Project Syndicate. He joins us from his home in California. Very dry and very hot. Minjin, I want to start off by talking about Hong Kong by going back to 1997. That's when the British returned Hong Kong to Chinese control. And they did so with the assurance that the city would maintain its adherence to democracy and the rule of law. And that's what we know as the one country, two systems compromise. That was supposed to last 50 years until 2047. What were the expectations from the handover? There are two documents that constitute the framework of Hong Kong's governance under Chinese rule and also spell out China's commitments. One is the so-called Sino-British Joint Declaration. The other is the basic law of Hong Kong, and I think it was passed in 1990. And the two are very different documents. China 
makes two sets of commitments, one to the British and the other to the people of Hong Kong in the commitments made by China to the British. China did not commit to democracy. China actually, throughout this process of transition before 1997, was adamantly opposed to any form of democracy. <laughs> but China did pledge to autonomy and maintaining the pre-existing economic legal system. So it could be said that China committed itself to upholding the rule of law in Hong Kong, but China never committed itself to the British, at least in that document, to democracy. However, in the mini constitution, so-called basic law, China did make a vague pledge to democracy, which is that at some point, what the ultimate goal is universal suffrage, which is China hates the word democracy. The Communist Party really hates the word democracy. So it used that phrase universal suffrage. So if you read the basic law, then there is an implied commitment to democracy. So you mention that China never made a commitment to the British to uphold democracy in Hong Kong. But many interpreted the joint declaration that way. To what extent is the agreement binding? Yeah, the joint declaration, which was signed in 1984, is an international treaty. The Chinese recently, I think only two or three years ago, said it was not binding. It was merely a historical record, which is total nonsense. The British insist that it is an international treaty, which was actually filed with the United Nations and should remain binding. But of course, the sad thing about the UK-China joint declaration is that there is no way for a third party to enforce it, especially when China became really too powerful for a third party to enforce it. Today, we're seeing the US trying to act as a third party enforcer. And even that has not deterred China. Well, regardless of whether they were committed or not to democracy, as you point out, China did pledge to keep Hong Kong's autonomous status. And after the first decade, after the 1997 handover, that went relatively smoothly. That changed, though, in 2013 when President Xi Jinping came to power. The new Chinese leaders revealed, led by President-in-waiting Xi Jinping, what does she hope to achieve by attempting to change Hong Kong's status? This not so much a new generation of leaders as a continuum of the last. We don't know what she exactly wanted to accomplish, but what he has been doing to Hong Kong uh, is not out of character what he has been doing in China. That is, he wants to strengthen the party's control. And he sees any opposition to the party's authority as a serious threat to internal stability and to uh, the party's long-term survival. That's why he wants to reassert control or increase control in Hong Kong, even though, realistically speaking, what happens in Hong Kong really does not affect 
China that much. Well, I was just going to ask that. I mean, several years ago, I mean, you've written extensively about this, about how she has expanded his powers as the leader of China. Lawmakers in China have passed an historic constitutional amendment that will allow the president to rule indefinitely. Mr. Xi's name and his political thought have been written into the very document that modern China is built upon. Xi Jinping has amassed more clout in China probably than any leader, probably since Mao, the founder of communist China. Could Hong Kong actually present such a big threat to his leadership? I think only in a very roundabout way. That is, can Hong Kong, which has a population of 7.5 million, which is isolated from China, and the people of Hong Kong actually speak a very different dialect, they really don't have that kind of political influence to directly threaten the survival of the Communist Party or directly threaten Xi's power. However, she does face a very serious problem. If the unrest or the defiance of the people of Hong Kong continues, this creates a problem for him within the party. He will be shown as being unable to solve a problem, a very serious problem, a problem of instability. Because compared with his predecessors, Hong Kong has now become a huge headache for the party. It's not a substantive headache, but it is an image problem that it, the party's authority is being defied in one place. And you open a foreign newspaper, it's on the front page. And she is really worried about being attacked within the party for his inability to reassert, reassert control in Hong Kong. So there is an internal elite power struggle issue for him rather than a direct threat posed by Hong Kong to the Communist Party. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020, that's PODCAST2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org. It just seems ironic that she is worried about the perception of his ability to maintain control in Hong Kong, especially given his latest actions there. So a year ago, Hong Kong citizens were out on the streets in full force, where we all saw them protesting a proposed bill that would have authorized China to extradite people to the mainland to stand trial there. And we saw this resistance die down at the end of the year because of the coronavirus pandemic. Everyone had to shelter in place and social distance. But as soon as China put forth the new security law, they poured out onto the streets again. Did she not anticipate this reaction? He likely, or he and his colleagues likely, did see this come 
a revival of protest. But they have a medium-term plan. They believe that once the law is passed, once Chinese security agents are stationed in Hong Kong, and once Hong Kong's police is empowered to arrest people on political grounds uh, using the national security uh, charges, through of fear or the enforcement of the rule of fear will over time snuff out such a resistance. For him, this is just short-term pain, long-term gain. I want to talk about the timing of the introduction of this new security law. How influential was the coronavirus in determining China's latest plans? Back in November, you were already warning about China's plans to gut the basic law, the city's mini constitution that you referred to early on. Oh, I think the coronavirus was pure coincidence. It merely made it easier, but they were going to go ahead with a series of steps targeting Hong Kong anyway. So back in November, I wrote, I looked at the resolution of the Chinese Communist Party Central Committee uh, meeting in late October, and they, they were very clear about what they were going to do. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's report to Congress means President Trump is now free to revoke Hong Kong's special status and treat it like the rest of China. Secretary Mike Pompeo said that no reasonable person can assert today that Hong Kong maintains a high degree of autonomy from China, given the facts on the ground. Minxin, in a column for Project Syndicate last year, you wrote that Xi's approach to Hong Kong is likely to harm China as countries revise their relationships with Asia's financial hub. We've already seen the U.S. government talk about not certifying that Hong Kong is an autonomous entity. China's latest incursion, along with other recent developments that degraded the territory's freedoms, makes clear that Hong Kong is no longer sufficiently autonomous to warrant the special treatment that we have afforded the territory since the handover. What is Xi's thinking there? Does she think that he can mitigate the damage China faces if Hong Kong loses that certification? When you look at what the U.S. can do to Hong Kong specifically, it's not that much. The direct damage is relatively modest. But China could suffer a lot of indirect damage. That is because Hong Kong as a financial center depends a lot on confidence. China's calculation is mostly based on two things. One is, as I said, the direct damage of potential U.S. sanctions or Western sanctions targeting Hong Kong. And China said, well, go ahead, be my guest, because the people of Hong Kong will suffer. China will not suffer. Secondarily, they are also quite cynical, if you want to use the word. At the end of the day, businesses are businesses. They look at Hong Kong, as long as they can make a buck there, they will stay there. And that's why when you look at what HSBC or Standard Charter, those American or British banks that have enormous economic interests in Hong Kong, what they are doing, they are coming out in support of the national security law. And that reconfirmed Beijing's strategic calculation. So they will say, well, we'll take a short-term hit, get criticized, get threatened. But over the long run, American firms 
European firms, they will stay in Hong Kong and do business with China because they say, what are the alternatives? Singapore, that's a bit too far away if you want to access China's market. Japan, not exactly ideal. Taiwan out of the question. And Korea is not a suitable place to replace Hong Kong. So they've made up their mind. But in the long run, I think they're mistaken because as a financial center, people really pay attention to how law is being enforced. And if now uh, there is this national security law, they don't know how much abuse there will be of this national security law. So there will be a lot less uncertainty. For the moment, to be sure, a lot of companies take a wait and see attitude. But when you get a few cases of arbitrary arrests, then companies will start moving. Uh, so the immediate cost may not be that huge, but over the long run, you can have escalating costs China will have to bear. But will China really bear escalating costs? And by that, I mean, when you take a look at the share of GDP that Hong Kong makes up of China's GDP, back in the 1990s, Hong Kong made up 27% of China's GDP. And today, it only makes up about 3%. And so it would just seem that the city's strategic importance has really diminished, at least in terms of its economic significance for China. Yeah, well, I think Hong Kong's GDP is not exactly the right measure to use in terms of evaluating Hong Kong's economic importance to China. The right measure to use is how is Hong Kong's role as a financial center that facilitates capital in and out of China. So let me just give you a few examples. Chinese companies, about 1,200 of them, are listed on Hong Kong's stock exchange. And they account for something like $3 trillion worth of market value. Chinese companies have raised a trillion dollars of capital in Hong Kong. Many of them are state-owned companies. Hong Kong is also a vital transit point for outbound Chinese capital. So over the years, about 600 billion Chinese capital have gone through Hong Kong to various destinations. So this is just Hong Kong as a financial center. So the moment you have exodus of investment banks, hedge funds, investment management companies from Hong Kong, then it will be very hard for Chinese companies to go to Hong Kong and list their shares and expect foreign investors to buy their shares. So that is going to be a huge price. The other price China will pay is that Hong Kong is where a lot of multinationals have their East Asian headquarters or headquarters doing business in China. And if they move, then supply chain management, uh, business contracts, all kinds of businesses that have to do with China will be affected. And this kind of activities are not reflected in Hong Kong's GDP. So just give you two very simple examples. And China will pay through the nose if Hong Kong stops being a vibrant financial center, stop being a center where 
international businesses would locate their China-oriented operations. Well, it's not just businesses that are thinking about leaving Hong Kong. In a major show of support to pro-democracy voices in Hong Kong, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced his intention to overhaul British immigration policy to fast-track citizenship for Hong Kong residents. If China follows through with its proposed legislation, we will put in place new arrangements to allow BNOs to come to the UK without the current six-month limit, enabling them to live and apply to study and work for extendable periods of 12 months thereby also providing a pathway to citizenship. Recently, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that his country may admit nearly 3 million Hong Kong citizens as UK residents. Can international pressure influence China's moves in Hong Kong? I don't think international pressure can stop the security law from being implemented. I think what the pressure can do in the short term is to constrain how the security law will be enforced. So if there's very strong pressure, China will be relatively more careful in arresting people, in sentencing people on the basis of the security law. However, I think China (coughs) faces a dilemma because if it does not strictly enforce the security law uh, introduced the rule of fear in Hong Kong, then opposition will view this as a paper tiger. So it's, so China really has to sort of find the sweet spot of enough repression, but not excessive repression that will lead to a mass exodus of talented people. Can democracy survive in Hong Kong? Well, Hong Kong today is really interesting. So there are three kinds of elections. You have the election for the chief executive, the most powerful position, which is not democratic. And you have the election for the legislative council. Half of it is undemocratic, half of it is democratic. And then you have the election for so-called district councils. These are very, really basic level government bodies. That is completely democratic. So you have a very mixed picture in Hong Kong. So when you see the outcomes, it's very clear. When you have real democracy, the district level elections, Hong Kong is very democratic. And pro-democracy forces won a landslide last year. When you have the sort of a legislative council elections, then pro-democracy forces would win more than half of the votes, even though they would gain no more than 40% of the seats. So we're worried now is that after the imposition of the security law, will the Chinese government use the security law to start arresting democratically elected legislators on all kinds of trumped up charges? And if they do that, then democracy will die. Minshin, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? I think what gives me hope is really the people. That is, uh, when you look at people of Hong Kong, the kind of courage, the kind of idealism that drives them to the streets, that sustain their movement. It gives me hope. Minshin, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That was Min Jin Pei, professor of government at Claremont McKenna College. 
And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. We're off for a midsummer break for the next few weeks. Until then, happy listening. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna.